following message is from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, go to trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. So glad you're here. If I haven't yet had a chance to meet you, my name is Michael. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Grace. We're so glad you're visiting if you're a guest this morning. As many of you will know, we've been working our way through a series in the Gospel of Mark since the new year, and our plan is to wrap this series up next week at Easter as we look at the resurrection of Jesus. When Rachel and I uh, were first married back in 2006, I was finishing up my college career at the University of Tennessee, and Rachel had just graduated, and she moved to Knoxville to be my sugar mama in a lot of ways because I still had school to finish. I wasn't a deadbeat husband. I had a part-time job doing landscaping at the time. But we lived in married student housing while I finished my final years of study there at Tennessee. And living there was really special for us as a married couple. It was only about 600 square feet of living space, if that. It had plain white cinder block walls. Uh, It was our first home. And we were on our own and making our way as a young married couple in the world. And one of the neatest things about married student housing at Tennessee is that it was really international student housing. Um, Because many of the internationals came to study as married people and very few folks our age were married at the time. And so they put you in this apartment complex with tons of other internationals. And one of the things we remember about our time there is all the cultures and the nationalities, the beauty and the smells of food being cooked in apartments that surrounded us during that year. You had Indians, you had Chinese, you had Saudis, you had Brazilians, and it was really a rich experience to be around that kind of diversity and beauty. Now, consider for a minute the complete normal and unspectacular quality of this sentence. 2,000 years ago, a lowly peasant man entered Jerusalem on a donkey. 2,000 years ago, a lowly peasant man entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Not really newsworthy. Yet 2,000 years later... Billions of people around the world are worshiping and remembering that entrance on this Sunday. Today is known as Palm Sunday in the church calendar. It's the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final time to enter into the last week of his life. And as Jesus entered, people welcomed him with a royal reception by placing palms and cloaks on the ground for him to ride over. Jesus entered as a king who was establishing a kingdom that transcends nationalities and cultures and governments and political boundaries. And today, people all over the world are remembering and celebrating this entrance. It reminds me of what we experienced back in college with so much diversity around us. This morning, people are worshiping and celebrating Palm Sunday in Uganda and in the Philippines and in Iraq and in Australia, and in Bolivia, and in Germany, and in China. And what we're doing this morning is joining our minds and our hearts with them as we celebrate the entrance of the King today. This morning, as we read the account of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, we're getting a chance to see the headwaters, in a sense, the source 
of this worldwide kingdom that Jesus came to establish. This morning, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem and he's recognized as a king. A king who's about to inaugurate his kingdom. And you and I are sitting here today as citizens of that kingdom 2,000 years later on a different continent altogether. To see where it all began, you follow along as I read Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It's printed for you in your bulletin. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought a colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. before. I had the chance to visit D.C. about two decades ago and it was pretty amazing. It was an amazing trip. It's not surprising that our capital was created to be an awe-inspiring place. The buildings and the architecture are really meant to impress you, and they seem larger than life in many ways. In fact, when you're there, you're almost meant to feel small and insignificant. I imagine that was kind of the goal of the overall plans for our capital, to make you as an individual feel tiny. On top of that, if you've ever been to D.C. and seen an important political figure travel from one place to another, you know that that can be an intimidating caravan. When a head of state or an important person travels the streets of D.C., it's not uncommon to see dozens of police cars as escorts. Maybe even a handful of black SUVs speeding in a line. Maybe even helicopters overhead for air cover. The more important the person that's traveling, the more intimidating a caravan can get. You can tell a lot about the importance and the significance of a person based on how they travel through cities, based on the kind of caravan they require, based on how they enter a new area. And in much the same way, we can learn something of Jesus by the way he enters Jerusalem in our passage. As we pick up in Mark chapter 11, we've got Jesus traveling from Jericho. He was in Jericho last week at the end of Mark chapter 10, and he's traveling to Jerusalem. You might not know this, you learn something new every day, but Jericho is the lowest city on earth. It's 800 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem, which is only about a dozen miles away from Jericho, is nearly 3,000 feet above sea level. And so the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem is an uphill trek that goes through hot, dry desert uh, land all the way to the top of the Mount of Olives. 
And it would have been a big relief for Jesus and his disciples in this crowd to get to the top. And Jesus is making this difficult journey to Jerusalem, we know from this passage, with quite a crowd. Well, this was an important week in the life of Israel. It was the beginning of one of their yearly festivals. In fact, it was the most important one where Jewish people celebrated the Passover in Jerusalem. Jewish people from hundreds of miles around would travel from far and wide to celebrate God's deliverance and the freedom that he brought them from Egypt. They met in Jerusalem for this week. It's hard to get an exact population of Jerusalem in the first century. Uh, It's pretty widely varying on the numbers that you read as you go and study it, but it's likely that the population of Jerusalem was somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 people in the first century. And during Passover week, that population would oftentimes swell to over 200,000. The ancient historian Josephus tells us that in Passover week one year, over 255,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple courts. That's a lot of lambs being sacrificed in one week. Passover week was a busy time in Jerusalem, the busiest time of the entire year. And it's during this festival, during the most important week of the year for the Jewish people, that Jesus comes into the city to accomplish the rescue that God had been planning from the foundations of the world. Up until now, Jesus has tried to keep quiet. You might have noticed that as we looked at Mark. He's attempted to mask his identity in many ways. He didn't want people to know who he was. One of those reasons was because he didn't want to get killed before his time. But now, as we pick up in our passage, Jesus is coming out of hiding, so to speak. He's ready to be recognized. The crowds publicly acknowledge his messiahship, proclaiming that he's king, and Jesus doesn't stop them. He doesn't ask them to be quiet. He welcomes their recognition and their praise, and by the end of the week, it's going to lead to his arrest and his execution. We see what kind of king Jesus is from our passage, and we're going to look at three different aspects of Christ's kingship this morning, three characteristics of this king. We see from our passage that Jesus is a demanding king, he's a humble king, and he's a saving king. Demanding, humble, and saving. First, let's spend a few minutes looking at the demanding king. The way this story plays out is so interesting. I mean, there's so much happening. And you get the sense that Jesus is orchestrating it all. As Jesus plans to come into Jerusalem, he does so very intentionally. Everything Jesus does, especially during the last week of his life, is intentional. It's important to remember, especially as we move into this week and celebrate uh, Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that Jesus enters Jerusalem to lay down his life on his own accord. He is not surprised by what happens to him this week. He is not shocked. In his mind, it is not a defeat. No one takes his life from him. He does it willingly and freely. He enters into Jerusalem with his eyes wide open. And as Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples ahead with a strange request. In verse 2, we see Jesus say to his disciples, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and he will send it back here immediately. Jesus very intentionally asks for a donkey. He almost demands it. And this, if you've not read the Bible before, or even if you have, can seem a bit strange. What is Jesus doing here? Why does he do this? Well, some Old Testament prophecy helps us understand this strange request from Jesus. In the book of Zechariah, which Brittany read for us this morning, we see that the coming king, the coming Messiah that God's people are waiting for, will come riding a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle boat shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah prophesies hundreds of years before that the king of Israel is going to bring salvation riding on a donkey. So Jesus needs a donkey. The Lord, the king, sends two of his disciples into the city to secure this donkey. They approach a complete stranger and they tell him that the Lord needs his donkey. Jesus demands a stranger's donkey so that he might fulfill his mission, so that he might bring salvation Can you imagine what this stranger might have been thinking at this request? I mean, you think it's bad when somebody comes into your house and opens the fridge without being asked, you know? I love how a pastor just down the road here reflects on this account in one of his books, Max Licato, who's at the the big whale of a church just down the street here. He writes about wanting to meet this man who owned the donkey when he gets to heaven. And this is what Licato says. When we all get to heaven, I know what I want to do. There's someone I want to get to know. I want to meet the guy with the donkey. I don't know his name or what he looks like. I only know what he gave. He gave a donkey for Jesus to use on the Sunday he entered Jerusalem. When we all get to heaven, I want to visit this fellow. I have several questions for him. Did you know? Did you have any idea that your generosity would be used for such a noble purpose? Did it ever occur to you that God was going to ride your donkey? Were you aware that all four gospel writers would tell your story? And he goes on to say, All of us have a donkey, something that if given to God could move Jesus in his story further down the road. Maybe you sing or program a computer or speak Swahili or write a check. Whichever it may be, that's your donkey. Whatever it is, your donkey belongs to God. Your gifts are his and the donkey was his. Do you give it? The guy who gave Jesus the donkey is just one in a long line of folks who gave little things to a big God. Have you ever considered that Jesus is on a mission to bring salvation to this world and it's likely that he may ask something of you that may seem costly and maybe even strange to make that mission happen? Jesus is on a mission to rescue our neighbors, to bring forgiveness and salvation to this world, and he needs a donkey. I mean, it sounds a bit silly, but I think it has profound implications for us. Are we ready to put our property, our time, our money, 
our energy at his disposal to obey his orders, no matter how silly a sound, to fulfill his demands. If you've got a God who never asks you of anything and challenges you or your demands or demands things, then you may have created God in your own image. We follow a king who has the right to demand our allegiance, our resources, our time, our talents. And he doesn't demand these things and we don't give them grudgingly. We can offer these things with great joy and with open hands because we know that when he demands something, like he demanded this man's donkey, he desires to use it, to use those things for the life of the world for the purpose of bringing salvation and rescue. When the king asks, we open our hands, giving little things to a big God, as Lucado says. So we see a demanding king, but it's for the best of purposes. And now let's turn and look for a few minutes at Jesus as the humble king. What makes the request from Jesus for a donkey even more unusual is that if you think about it, Jesus normally walks everywhere he goes. In fact, this is the first time uh, and really the only time in the Gospels where Jesus rides anything. He normally walks, he normally blends in, but Jesus is making a point here. With Zechariah's prophecy in mind, Jesus is saying, I'm the king. And people get this. It's why we see them take their cloaks and palm branches and lay them in front of Jesus. This action is analogous to what we might think of rolling out the red carpet. This was a royal reception. It's equivalent to our idea of a ticker tape parade. Lots of jubilation for somebody entering a city, a celebration. Jesus is coming as king, but he doesn't come like a normal king. The way a king normally entered a city is with power. A king normally entered the city on a war horse with an entourage. I think of the movie Gladiator, which you might not believe this, won Best Picture in 2000. And there's a scene in that movie when Commodus, the new emperor, enters Rome for the first time. And it's probably not historically accurate in all of its ways, but he enters on a powerful chariot surrounded by military might with people lining the streets to pay homage, with lots of fanfare and pomp and celebration and even music. That's how a king normally entered a city, with power and prestige and honor. But Jesus comes in a way that isn't flashy. It's not slick. It's not powerful. It's kind of homespun. It's humble. Jesus was king, but he didn't fit the world's categories for kingship. A donkey was not looked up to. It was not a stylish or powerful animal. I don't think it is today either. In fact, Socrates articulated the common view of donkeys in that day by saying this, those who have cultivated gluttony or selfishness or drunkenness in life are likely to assume in their next existence the form of donkeys or other perverse animals. A rabbinic saying from that time had it that if Israel was worthy, the Son of Man would come to her on clouds of heaven, but if she were unworthy, he would come riding on a donkey. Even though the way Jesus enters the city lets people know that he comes in humility, the crowd still had high expectations for Jesus. 
The crowds had an agenda for Jesus, for their king. They wanted and expected him to establish a new kingdom by kicking out the oppressors. They wanted him to reestablish a Jewish dynasty to get rid of the Romans that were occupying their land. They wanted Jesus to save them politically. They wanted him to enter Jerusalem on a war horse, to clean house, to exert power, to wield a sword. But they missed from Zechariah chapter 9, that their king would be humble. He doesn't come on a war horse. He doesn't come to be a political savior. He comes to be executed. He comes to lay down his life. He comes to save not Israel, but to save the entire world. He comes not to make war, but to bring peace. Jesus was coming to defeat sin and death and Satan. He had bigger things on his mind than just the Roman occupiers. He came to defeat all of our spiritual enemies. And by riding on a donkey, Jesus shows us the kind of Messiah that he is. He's no man of war, but a man of peace coming in humility and service. Look, the crowd's expectations were completely off base. But we can't be too hard on the crowd and their expectations for Jesus. Because we often have expectations that are off base for him as well. You and I, if we're honest, we don't often articulate it, but we've got an agenda for Jesus. We want him to fix things in our life and in this world the way we want them to be fixed. We've got an agenda for Jesus when it comes to our health. We expect to live a life free of sickness and disease. That's what our agenda is for Jesus. Give me a healthful life. We have an agenda for Jesus when it comes to our vocations that will continue to advance and never experience job difficulties or setbacks. That's what he owes us. We have an agenda for Jesus when it comes to our families that our kids will always be close to us and never struggle with following Jesus as their savior. We've got an agenda for Jesus when it comes to our financial success that he'll provide for us in such a way that we'll be able to retire comfortably and at an early age. That's our agenda for him and he needs to meet it. We've got a long list of expectations for Jesus, if we're honest. Mostly unarticulated, but strongly held expectations. And Jesus comes into our lives with his own agenda. He comes to deal mainly with your heart. He is concerned mostly with the kind of person you're becoming. He's concerned with crafting and perfecting his image in you. And that's the agenda that Jesus has for us. And he'll do whatever it takes to accomplish that agenda. In fact, sometimes he brings sickness. Sometimes he brings job loss and disappointment and family breakdown in order to accomplish his agenda in our lives. It didn't look like he was accomplishing much on the cross. I can guarantee you that in that day and age. But he was accomplishing the salvation of the entire world. And we may not recognize it or want to even admit it, but Jesus' agenda is better than our agenda. Christ's plan is better than our plan. Jesus came not as people expected. He came as a humble king, not meeting our expectations to bring us what we ultimately need most. Salvation and rescue from sin and death. So, seeing that Jesus is a demanding king, we've seen that he's a humble king. Lastly, let's spend just a few minutes from our passage looking at how Jesus is a saving king. 
Even though the crowds and Jesus' closest disciples still don't get exactly what Jesus is coming to do, they really don't know, I don't believe. They welcome him into the city with praise. In verses 9 and 10, we see the shouts of praise from the crowds. Mark records it this way. Those who went before and those who followed Jesus were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, the phrase Hosanna in the highest is a direct reference to Psalm 118, which we used as our call to worship this morning. They're using Psalm 118 to praise Jesus. Hosanna literally means, save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the praises of these people. And they also exclaim, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And this sounds a bit strange to our ears, but the crowds are connecting the dots between David and Jesus, between their great king in the Old Testament and this new king that's riding into Jerusalem. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that David's throne would stand forever. It's what we know as the Davidic covenant in the Old Testament. God promised that David's throne would stand forever and that one day God would send a king to sit on that throne and to establish a righteous rule from that throne. In the crowd, even though they don't understand how Jesus is about to institute this new kingdom, recognize Jesus as the heir of King David. And it's significant that Jesus does not deny this title. You've got to understand that. He doesn't stop the crowds from chanting towards him and praising him. He embraces it. He doesn't stop people from using this title. And this is really what made the scribes and the Pharisees so angry that they wanted to kill him because they knew what this chant meant. These crowds were worshiping Jesus. They knew enough about him and his work that it stoked excitement and adoration in their hearts. They were shouting, save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. They had seen enough to know that Jesus was worthy of worship. Worship is a response to the saving work of the king. Other gods in the ancient world demanded worship. But they did it before they would give you love or favor or acceptance. But for us and Jesus, it's different. We worship not to be loved or favored or accepted. We worship because we've been loved and favored and accepted. Worship is always a response. It's not some way that we manipulate God. It's what we do because of Christ's saving actions towards us. It's what we're doing this morning, what we do every week. We're responding to the good news that God saves us. Save us, we pray. We're celebrating the fact that we don't save ourselves, that we can't save ourselves. But knowing that Jesus is one who comes to save, are we ready to go out of our way to honor him? to welcome him into our lives, to spread out our cloaks and our palm branches before him, to welcome him into our hearts with worship. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem for the final time, he's going to put a choice before these people, before the week is up. Will you be my disciples or will you be my executioners? Will you be my disciples or will you be my executioners? There's no middle ground. Jesus puts people in a situation where they have to say yes or no. You either have to crown Jesus as king or you have to crucify him. One of the things you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. 
And some of these same people who are welcoming Jesus now will in a few days be shouting out for him to be crucified. The first word from the crowds in this Holy Passion Week is Hosanna, save us, we pray. And the last words from the crowd will be crucify him, crucify him. And the way Jesus brings his kingdom is going to disappoint these crowds. It'll be too much for them to take. But Jesus is not going to inflict violence. Instead, he's going to take violence upon his own body so that we might have peace. And it's why we join our voices with billions of others around the world today in worship. The one whose rule will be from sea to sea, who will call all nations to himself, the one to whom every knee will bow and tongue confess as Lord, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. I love how one of my pastor friends puts it when he says this, no other king could vanquish war horses and warriors riding the foal of a donkey. No other king could break the battle bow and backbone of warfare by the brokenness of crucifixion. No other king could replace the dominion of darkness and the tyranny of evil with an eternal reign of grace and peace. No other king would give his life and death for the redemption of rebels and idolaters like us. No other king transformed slaves of sin and death into prisoners of hope. That's what we're celebrating as we enter this final week of Christ's life. And it's our hope here at Trinity Grace that you'll enter into this celebration well this week. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you came. You came demanding certain things. You came in great humility and you came in order to save us. And this morning, we rejoice uh, in that salvation. We rejoice in the fact that you have accomplished what we never could uh, by dying on a cross on our behalf and being raised three days later. We pray this week that as we celebrate, as we remember that, glorious, miraculous event that you would encourage our hearts and souls and conform us more into the image of your Son, whose name we pray. Amen.